hppodcraft.com. I can assure you, said I, that it will take a very tangible ghost to frighten me. And I stood up before the fire with my glass in my hand. It is your own choosing, said the man with the withered arm, and glanced at me askance. Eight and twenty years, said I, I have lived and never a ghost have I seen as yet. The old woman sat staring hard into the fire, her pale eyes wide open. I, she broke in, and eight and twenty years you have lived and never seen the likes of this house, I reckon. There's a many things to see when one's still but eight and twenty. She swayed her head slowly from side to side. A many things to see and sorrow for. Those were the first few paragraphs of H.G. Wells' The Red Room. And you are listening to the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast here at hppodcraft.com. I'm Chad Pfeiffer. I'm Chris Lackey, and welcome to 2014. Woohoo! We're here. We're living in the future. We are in the future. And so it's a good reason that we picked this author, right? Uh, yes, because H.G. Wells is uh, well known for writing one of my favorite stories, The Time Machine. Well known for writing one of my favorite stories, The Invisible Man. And he's also well known for writing another one of my favorite stories, The War of the Worlds. And then also The Island of Dr. Moreau. Hey, we're trading them pretty good because The Island of Dr. Moreau, man, I loved that book when I was a kid. I have to admit, I've never actually read The Island of Dr. Moreau. No? Did you ever see any of the movies? There's a good one with uh, Bella Lugosi in it. I have seen the Val Kilmer one. Oh, that's a good one with the little shrinky uh, Marlon Brando. Yeah, he's a man that suffers from primordial dwarfism. It's the smallest type of adult human that exists. I actually liked that uh, that adaptation. Yeah, I thought it was, was pretty interesting. I remember at the time people kind of taking the piss out of it, but I thought it was good. I did like Val Kilmer's Marlon Brando personation. I did too. <laughs> that has really nothing to do with today's story. Which those uh, first few paragraphs were read by one of our new favorite readers, C.S. Humble a comic book publisher out of Austin. Uh, he did some great work for us last year, and we thought we'd bring him uh, bring him back again. So thanks for doing that for us, CS. Yeah, great stuff. Uh, I didn't know if we wanted to jump into a little bit about HG, who he was and what he was doing before we tackle the story. Yeah, a little bit, because I don't think we'll probably cover, at least in the Weird Fiction podcast, I don't know if we'll be covering any more HG Wells. No, I don't think so. Since primarily he's sort of known as a social commentator and a futurist, and, and this is one of the few horror stories that he wrote, if you can call it that. Yeah, if you can call it that. <laughs> he was born in uh, 1866 and died in 1946, so he, he lived on past Lovecraft. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he was a teacher and he was a biologist. He even studied under Thomas Huxley, who you might know as uh, Darwin's bulldog. Darwin's bulldog? What do you mean? Big proponent of Darwin's theory of evolution, and he was a, a guy that really helped to popularize it. Big dude in biology. Gotcha. and. He actually studied directly under him. He was like a real science dude. He was. He was. He, he really had a good educational background to support the things that he was writing about. This particular story, The Red Room, was written in 1894. And then was published in 1896. I think The Time Machine came out in 1895. So this is right at the beginning of his quite storied literary career. You have a note here. There's something interesting about. Yeah, yeah. He's uh, his his personal life. He was a bit of a sexual libertine. Is that so? Yeah, he, well, first he married his cousin, uh, Isabel Mary Wells, who, that's not a big deal. That, a lot of people married their cousins in the old days. That's not, 
not, not too big a thing, but they got divorced or agreed to separate when he fell in love with one of his students. And then her name was Catherine Robbins, and mm-hmm. she, him and her got married. But this is the weird thing. He had a number of affairs, and she agreed to him having extramarital relationships because she couldn't satisfy him sexually. Huh. So it's, it's pretty strange. So he had a number of affairs and illegitimate children. He had a daughter with Amber Reeves who was uh, a writer. He had a son, Anthony West, by a feminist, Rebecca West. Wow. And she was 26 years younger than him. Oh, my goodness. So, I mean, the guy, man, he got around. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. I didn't know that about him. No. I was just kind of reading up about his stuff. And for some reason, the sex stuff is always interesting of to course, me. Of course, of course. Well, that's not something that you typically hear. No, no. Speaking of which, I watched uh, the BBC had one of M.R. James's stories adapted on mm-hmm. Christmas Day. They, they do that quite a bit here. Sure. So they show an M.R. James adaptation. It was okay. I wasn't particularly impressed with the adaptation, but they had a documentary about him after the fact, which I thought was really interesting. And I don't know if it's going to be on BBC America, but you might be able to find it online or look around for it. I would say recommend it. It's pretty interesting and it paints an interesting picture of him. And I don't know if we talked about it on the show. The documentary really implied that he was gay. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, people's sexual activity is always interesting to me. Yeah. Of course, because you're a pervert. I am a pervert. Moving on. <laughs> so this story probably wasn't very interesting to you since there's zero sexual content. There's zero sex, even though I was very interested in the beginning of the story. Yeah, because whenever old people show up, that's when you start getting turned on, right? I will neither confirm nor deny. <laughs> well, let's get into the story. The story starts off with our narrator, a 28-year-old man, claiming that he has never seen a ghost. I, you know, Chad, I've never seen a ghost. Right. I'm 40 and I've never seen a ghost. I've never seen a ghost either. You know, I thought that was an interesting age for him to choose because H.G. Wells would have been 28. Uh Uh-huh. Since this was written in 1894. So I believe that he's, you know, he has some understanding that there's still a lot for him to learn. This character is very sure that he's pretty much got the world figured out. Right. The old people are saying, well, you know, there's, as we heard in that opening, there's still a lot to learn when one's only 28 years old. and. Yeah, of course. You know, I I mean, I feel like the older I get, the less I feel like I have a handle on. I think when I was about seven years old, that's when I was sure I had the world figured out. I think we talked about that before. I remember having that memory when I was seven and thinking, yeah, I could pretty much leave home and I'd be okay. (laughs) I've got it. You know, I've got all the basic skills mastered. But then it's been downhill since then. Yeah, being an adult is pretty terrifying, I have to say. (laughs) It is. Like when you're a kid, you just think, hey, I can just eat candy and (laughs) play video games all day. Yeah. That's what I can do with my life. And you don't get to do any of those things. No, you don't. Well, I do. I've been playing some video games. Back to the story. Yeah, there's two old people in there at this point. There's an old lady and there's this guy with a withered arm. And the old lady's like, hey, you've never seen a house like this, youngin. Right. You don't know what you're talking about. The young guy looks at himself. He sees there's a mirror in this room when he's talking to these old people. And he sees himself and he's like, yeah, I'm kind of handsome and burly and tough and rugged. I'm ready to take action. But it's basically he's going to spend the night in this creepy house. Yeah. Wells isn't inventing anything new here as he did with some of the other stories and novels that he wrote. This is a pretty typical gothic ghost story. Yes. You got a creepy house. It's hosted by some creepy old people, some kind of ghostly history. And the narrator is going to prove that none of it's real by spending the night. And we see this in H.P. Lovecraft stories. We see this in stories previous to this. That is the atypical gothic ghost story setup. And you're getting it in spades here. (laughs) An even older guy shows up, and nobody really pays him any mind, except he's coughing and making all this noise and stuff. He just goes and sits down, and the old lady ignores him. 
uh, Withers gives him a glance, kind of acknowledges that he came in, but doesn't say anything about mm-hmm. him or addresses him in any way. Are you calling the old guy Withers because he has a withered arm? Yeah. That's not nice. <laughs> I guess that's like me calling that other guy a shrinky Marlon Brando. Just, that's not a nice thing to say. Well, um, I thought at that point when this guy comes in, because the description was so horrific, you know, he's got a limp and his teeth are yellowed and decaying, his bottom lip is hanging out. And then the woman didn't even look at him. So I thought, maybe this is the ghost. Maybe something cool is going to happen. Like the ghost will have been uh, there the right. whole time or something. No, I didn't think that. I thought this might go in an interesting direction. Well, yeah, I mean, so did I. I mean, I, these characters, th- these descriptions were very engaging. I'm like, all right, these are creepy people. If this is how it's starting, it's got to be bringing some real scary, creepy stuff. Yeah, exactly. Withers offers the old man a drink, but the old man spills more than he actually gets in the <laughs> glass. <laughs> and then the 28-year-old guy, our narrator, admits that old people creep him out. Yeah. He says there's something inhuman in senility, something crouching and atavistic. What, what, do you, what does that mean? Ancestral? Yeah, well, I think it means a reversion to ancestral type. You become less human. Human qualities seem to drop from old people insensibly day by day. So I guess he just means they're becoming less like actual human beings. You know, when people get older, they become more childlike as well. That's true. Sometimes they need to be taken care of. They have health issues. And their mind goes as well, sometimes. Certainly, the this guy has said, I'm. he's looked in the mirror, he's confirmed that he's stout, he's strong, he's a skeptic. At that point, he says, I'm ready to be, I'm ready to be shown up to this room, this red room. And he says that and everybody just kind of sits there. Right. <laughs> and then, so he asks again, and Withers says, uh, if he goes to that red room tonight, he goes alone. Yeah, they're not going to go with him, no way. The old lady keeps saying, this night of all nights. That's another cliche of the gothic ghost story. Yeah. Not only is it a haunted room, but this is the very night you shouldn't go in there. Right. So he decides he's going to go on his own. He asks how to get to that room. They give him the directions. He confirms it with them. He says, okay. He takes off. The other thing that's going on here, of course, is all of these old people represent that townsperson who says, don't go, don't go. You know? Yeah. They're working very hard to set expectations with him, I feel like, you know, the old folks. Because at this point, I was thinking maybe it was some kind of scam going on as well. Just the fact that they keep... It's of your own choosing. Tonight of all nights. Oh, this terrible. I'm not even going to go in there. So they're really trying to make him feel as if there's something horrific in that room. Okay. So he gets going. He's walking up the passage to the room. He's looking at all of the old furniture. Everything in this place is out of date. Seems to belong to another age, Mm -hmm. including those people who are wearing old garments and that sort of thing. He says they seem to belong to another age, an older age, an age when things spiritual were indeed to be feared, when common sense was uncommon. An age when omens and witches were credible and ghosts beyond denying. That seems to be an often used literary idea that at some point in history, things actually were magical, but they're not anymore across all sorts of genres. The way I took it more is that we are now in a more enlightened age and -hmm. people don't go for those types of things. Right, right. So it's not it's not necessarily about that those things were actually manifest in real things, but Mm -hmm. it was just that people were misguided. And, you know, if they thought if you had a stomachache, it was because there was a small frog living in your belly. <laughs> right. We know better now. I guess the key phrase there is common sense was uncommon. But now people have this kind of thing figured out. Yeah. So he heads over to the room. There were a couple of phrases here that I liked when he's talking about the cut of the clothing of the old folks and some of the ornaments and conveniences in the room. They're all out of time, and he calls them fashions born and dead brains. The thoughts of vanished men, which still haunt rather than participate in the world of today. I don't have much to say about that, but I liked the phrases. Yeah. The fact that so many... Things that we are dealing with in the world are really ghosts in and of themselves. They're ideas that were cooked up by people who were long dead. Yeah. I thought it was just an interesting way to describe it. So it was, it was pulling me into the story even more. Again, I'm still on board with the story at this mm-hmm. point. I'm going, okay, yeah, this is cool. Interesting stuff. He gets to the room as he's approaching it. 
he sees this shadow. It seems to be like some lurker kind of crouching by the door. Mm-hmm. Freaks him out a little bit, so he puts his hand on his revolver. All these characters always have revolvers. Yeah, everybody's packing heat in these old stories. Is I, that just something that people did? Did everybody carry a gun in the old days? I doubt that's true. I'm, I'm sure that it was a lot more prevalent. But I would also say that when a skeptic goes into some potentially haunting situation, it's probably best to be armed in case there's folks who are trying to trick you. Sure. Or hurt you. Especially with these stories. I mean, we find out that this this story, there was a, a fellow that stayed there. A, a young duke tried to spend the night. He didn't make it out. Yeah, he died. In fact, he died on the stairs that lead up to the room. Right. He fell and he busted his head open there. So the narrator knows this as he's going up those stairs that the man just died here. So thinking to your idea here that mm-hmm. if he's packing heat, because if he doesn't think that it really is a ghost, that maybe somebody actually killed that guy. Sure. And maybe somebody's going to kill him. Yeah, so it's wise to have the gun, although I think he she chalks up that guy's death to apoplexy. Oh, right, well. He says, you know, never has apoplexy been more in the service of the supernatural. Right. All of the past events that are described in this room have somewhat rational explanations for him. I think this all began when a woman died because of a joke that her husband played on her. It's the the castle, it's called the Rain Castle. Yeah, a tragic end of a joke played by a husband on his young wife there long ago. It's what started this off, so it was probably just some kind of prank that started it. And then this duke who tried to spend the night died, probably just because he had some kind of condition or something freaked him out so much. But it was still internal to him, as far as we know. Mm -hmm. That thing that was crouching in the corner that he thought was when he gets there, he throws a light on it, and it's a Ganymede and Eagle statue. Mm -hmm. So it's nothing to be worried about at all. It's just a little bronze statue that's casting the shadow. So he's relieved by that. But I found this, this to be interesting that it was the statue. I don't know if this statue thematically relates to the story at all, but it certainly relates to the roundtable discussion that we just put out this week. And folks, if you haven't gone to check it out yet, it's uh, our last roundtable of 2013. Mm-hmm. We did it on Lovecraft and Legends and Myths. Yep. We had some great guests that were contributors to our Kickstarter. And Matt Barisi. And Matt Barisi was on there with us, which was awesome. <laughs> That's up now if you want to go check it out. We were talking then about how... Uh, the gods would interfere in mortal lives directly. And that's not something you see in Lovecraft necessarily. We had a little bit of a discussion about that. And I was saying that Zeus, anytime he saw a hot chick, he would turn into some animal and come down. Although with Ganymede and the eagle, uh, Ganymede is a a boy Mm -hmm. who Zeus either sent an eagle or turned into an eagle and came down and abducted him, brought him up to Olympus and made him serve as the cupbearer to the gods. Ganymede is also a moon of Jupiter. Jupiter being Zeus. Actually, I think that's because he's circling around Jupiter and serving him. Right. Okay, so no longer worried about that shadow. He finally enters the room. It's red. It's large and dark. It's full of black and red furnishings. Very creepy looking. He walks around the room. He only has a candle. Now, if a room's mostly decorated in black and red, it's going to not be very well lit anyway. So any light that you're is coming off that candle is not going to be reflected, so it's going to be extra, extra mm-hmm. dark. As he's moving through the room, he lights candles, and he finds six of them just located throughout the room as he's moving around exploring the place. And he also lights the fireplace, which has been previously set up by somebody. Which was surprising to him that a a maid would have come in and set the fire, considering that nobody wants to come into this room. I took that as a clue at that moment. I didn't take that as a clue. I didn't. You're more clever than I. Not necessarily. Well, (laughs) let's talk about it at the end of the... Look, man, I mean, I had the same reaction as you to this story where I didn't like it that much. And so I was trying to do things to make it better in my in my head. <laughs> sure. Sure. Good for you. But he lights all the candles because it, it's so dark in there, right? Yeah, it's super dark room. So he notices that there's sort of some darker shadows playing in one of the corners of the room. Mm-hmm. 
and he goes over to check it out. It's, it's called a dark alcove. Yeah. And he thinks that maybe, he doesn't think it, he, it just kind of reminds him of something being alive over there. He's got to check it out though, because he's the skeptic and he's there to check these things out. But he decides he wants more light before he starts checking things out. So he remembers he saw some candles in the hallway, so he goes back, grabs a bunch more candles and puts them all over the room. That's just kind of, I mean, he's basically shedding light on absolutely everything. You know, yeah. he's, he's like, if a ghost were to come out now, it would trip over one of these candles. It's way too illuminated in here. So he's doing everything he can to dispel his own fear. Each one of those shadows sort of bothered him. The fact that he's got everything illuminated now, we should have absolutely no problems. Midnight rolls around. <laughs> yeah. And uh, the candle over in the dark alcove, it goes out. So he goes, all right, candle goes out. It's a little drafty here. No biggie. But he, he's kind of freaky and scared and it's after midnight so he goes up to relight the candle and when he goes up two candles behind him go out so then he starts to get a little cagey he's like whoa, whoa why are these candles going out what's going on here and i thought to myself it's a draft mm-hmm. that's what he thinks too you know don't be getting cagey chill out he then goes to try and get those candles relit but then candles start going out while he's going to light candles his matches are going out and it takes him time to light a new one right. so once he's got one candle to light everything else, he thinks that's going to be a better plan. Exactly. This is quickly turning into a whack-a-mole kind of game where as soon as he lights one candle, more go out. When he goes over to light those, the other ones go out. There's some sort of almost sedentary force that is trying to make this room dark. It gets even worse because even the, the fire goes out. And the, the fire in the fireplace is going out as well. And finally, the, his own candle is out. He can't get the fire relit. All the candles have gone out, and he's in complete palpable darkness. Mm-hmm. And it's scaring the bejesus out of him. The candle falls out of his hands. He actually throws his arms out and he starts (laughs) screaming (laughs) with all of his might into the air. Uh And then he gets his feet and he wants to get out of there. So he heads for the door. But I had forgotten the exact position of the door and I struck myself heavily against the corner of the bed. I staggered back, turned and was either struck or struck myself against some other bulky furnishing. I have a vague memory of battering myself thus to and fro in the darkness, of a heavy blow at the last upon my forehead, of a horrible sensation of falling that lasted an age, of my last frantic effort to keep my footing, and then I remember no more. Possibly he had some kind of struggle in the dark with something? No. Or it was just him wrestling with the dresser? Yeah, that's, I mean, that's what he says. He doesn't say, I feel like there's this presence in the room that is combating me. The way that it's written is like, he gets scared, loses where he's in the room and keeps running into stuff. And then he falls down and knocks himself out. Fainting has happened. Well, it's not even, I don't even know if it's a, he just says he doesn't remember anything. I thought he maybe fell down and, and hit his head on something. I think that's probably what happened because he wakes up the next day. He's got blood on his forehead and lips. Yeah. Well, at dawn, the old people find him. He's got blood on his forehead and lips. When he wakes, they're sort of nursing him. Mm -hmm. And suddenly he feels much less unkind towards them, having gone through this experience. Yeah, and he says that they look much less creepy when he sees them in the light of day. And he's like, oh, they're just old people. It was very slowly I recovered the memory of my experience. You believe now, said the old man with the withered hand that the room is haunted. He spoke no longer as one who greets an intruder, but as one who condoles with a friend. Yes, said I, the room is haunted, and you have seen it. And we who have been here all our lives have never set eyes upon it, because we have never dared. Tell us, is it truly the old Earl who- No, said I, it is not. 
I told you so, said the old lady with the glass in her hand. It is his poor young countess who was frightened. It is not, I said. There is neither ghost of Earl nor ghost of countess in that room. There is no ghost in there at all, but worse, far worse, something impalpable. Well, they said. The worst of all things that haunt poor mortal men, said I, and that is, in all its nakedness, fear. Fear that will not have light nor sound, that will not bear with reason, that deafens and darkens and overwhelms. It followed me through the corridor. It fought against me in the room. I stopped abruptly. There was an interval of silence. My hand went up to my bandages. The candles went out one after another, and I fled. Then the man with the shade lifted his face sideways to see me and spoke. That is it, said he. I knew that was it. A power of darkness to put such a curse upon a home. It lurks there always. You can feel it even in the daytime, even of a bright summer's day in the hangings, in the curtains, keeping behind you however you face about. In the dusk it creeps in the corner and follows you so that you dare not turn. It is even as you say, fear itself is in that room. Black fear. And there it will be so long as this house of sin endures. That's the end of the story. That is the end of perhaps the least scary story of all time. <laughs> I, I get what he's trying to do here I, it, in that ending. It, it really spells it out for you. But when I'm reading the story, it doesn't even suggest that maybe there's something else there, that something else is going on. Like, I feel like maybe that would have been better storytelling if he was leading the reader along to make you think that there was something there and then it's revealed well there was nothing actually there it was all me but mm -hmm. what he does in the story he just really describes the candles go out he loses his sense of direction and trips over the furniture freaks out has a spaz attack falls down and knocks himself out and how do you account for the candles going out wind a breeze kicks up there's like it's a, if it's an old house it's drafts mm -hmm. weather changes outside when he goes in the house when he goes into the room it's not too yeah. windy out the wind picks up in the in the middle of the night. A breeze starts coming through the house, just knocks out all the candles. Could also take out the fire as well. Right. I agree with you. It's not even remotely scary. I'm like, what? I had to go online and because I read it, and I go, I'm missing something. I must be missing something. So I I read some synopsis online, and I'm like, no, I'm not missing anything. Why do you think he did that? I personally think that the fact that this is a horror story is almost irrelevant. I mean, it's not a genre that he wrote in frequently. I think he's taking it because we are familiar with all of its cliches. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And he's trying to introduce a thought that most people create a self-fulfilling prophecy, I guess. Sure. Fear is really the one thing. I mean, obviously, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. And people with knives. And people with <laughs> knives and polio. But the, um, <laughs> but the idea is, look, these guys... Say it's not a ghost story. Say it's somebody who says it's a kid in the U.S. who says, I want to see Africa. And everybody says, well, you know, 
if you go over there, you're going to get sick. You know, you're going to get attacked. People don't like women over there, so you better be careful because they're going to say, you know, they fill your head with all of these things so that so many people wouldn't have the courage to do it. But maybe if you get the courage to do it, then all of those things that they told you characterize things that don't have anything to do with it. Does this example make any sense? No, I I know what you're saying, and I get it. But from keeping a story engaging, I think it would have been much more powerful if I was actually scared Mm. when reading this story because I would feel what the protagonist was feeling. But I wasn't feeling that. I was thinking, calm down, you idiot. You're just, it's just dark. Yeah. Why are you having a a freak out? That that doesn't make any sense to me. But if the writer was painting it in a way that I could empathize with what he was feeling, then I would Mm -hmm. be, this ending, this ending, this reveal that it was actually just fear of the darkness would mean more, uh, something to me. Yeah. Yeah. I see what you're saying. If he, I completely see what you're saying. If it had been more effective as a horror story, the point would have been better taken. Exactly. I agree with you. I think that all along he was letting you know that it was fake. Your feeling is that it should have been less obvious. Yeah. Because the character that you're supposed to relate to actually got that scared. Well, yeah, and we we've read so many of these weird fiction stories that there's a lot of times you don't know if something was going on or if something wasn't going on, and those stories are really effective. And this yeah. doesn't even try to do that at all. But I think, so here, just to play devil's advocate, sure, sure. I think that those stories oftentimes are trying to create a feeling in the reader of, well, I just don't know. Yes. You know, I, I can't tell what's real and what's not. Whereas here, he's very interested in letting you know that these are all real situations. And I think he's trying to demonstrate how powerful the emotion of fear is because what happened to him isn't scary at all. The fact that just the candles are going out he had everything so built up that that was enough to make him fall down and hit his head and be afraid. Had we thought it was actually a monster, we would have been able to much more relate to him. And yeah. then if later we'd have found out that's not really what it was, we got tricked. Whereas this is better to show it was just fear all along. That was the only thing that was going on. I understand that, but it doesn't make an interesting story. Maybe. It, well, just I guess it depends on what the author's after. Right? You know, this is just like you and I going, we've talked about this before when we were in the graveyard and we got scared. Uh-huh. Because there were lights showing on the gravestones. It was quite obvious what was going on. Sure. And then there was a bag on a stick or something that we saw. And we got so scared we ran out of there. We ran out of there. Absolutely. <laughs> but if in telling that story, I don't paint it as there was a shape that was vaguely like a bag on a, that yeah. was caught in the wind. <laughs> you know, like that's not a way to tell a story. You go, it was a shape. I saw two arms flailing and a sound yeah. of like. <laughs> when I tell that story, that's how I tell it. Because people go, oh, my God, that sounds so horrible. I'm like, I know. It was horrible. I was so scared. We went back, and it was a plastic bag stuck on a stick. And as a format, you think it's better to have more of a setup and punchline than all punchlines. Of course I do. Of course I I do. Now, I understand that he's coming at this. This obviously is a take on a gothic story Mm -hmm. because it has all the trappings of it, and he's trying to repaint it in this very reasoned-out way. And I understand that, and it's an interesting idea. And I appreciate, he's a great writer. Like, I really appreciate the way that he puts the words together. However, it just doesn't work for me. This ending, though, seems justified by the way he put it together because it's similar to The White Wolf, Uh where at the end the character kind of took the exact wrong lesson out of it. Mm -hmm. This is similar. And it also calls to mind that Houdini, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle story, where Houdini said, to Doyle. Now, I'm a magician, and if I can produce a trick that you absolutely cannot understand, will you then admit there are things in the world that you can't understand that aren't necessarily supernatural? They could have been constructed some natural way. Yeah. He says, yes, of course. I've talked 
through this scenario before, so I won't mm-hmm. go into too much detail, but basically Houdini pulls the trick. Conan Doyle is completely baffled by how he did it. So instead of agreeing with what Houdini's initial premise was, he says, well, obviously you have magical powers. Yeah. <laughs> the same thing happened here because they find the protagonist unconscious. They wake him up. What happened? Was it was it the Duke or was it uh, the poor young countess who was frightened? Mm-hmm. And he says right away, no, it's none of that stuff. It was fear. Right. Fear is the only thing we need to be afraid of, and that's what caused the problem. And then the old man takes it a step further. I knew it. I knew it wasn't any of those ghosts. It's the power of darkness. Right. It's it's this black fear. He makes that supernaturally. Completely misses the point of what the protagonist said. Right. And that might not be as effective if we didn't know all along. Maybe. Maybe. And maybe I'm biased because I have a certain type of... Well, of course I'm biased. I'm me. <laughs> I like certain things and I don't like other things. This is something... And I love H.G. Like, I love yeah. him. Like, Time Machine, I think, is one of the best novels ever written. I think yeah. it's so... Best science fiction, for sure. Oh, it's it's horrific, too, by the way. Oh, when my he God. goes into the far the, future. Far future, total Lovecraftian type stuff. It's, yeah, it's amazing. Absolutely. I didn't read it until I was older and mm-hmm. I w- couldn't believe how solid science fiction that book was. It was just yeah. so good. Take the time and read it. It's great. Yeah. Oh, I've read it. It's it's fantastic, but everybody should. The, the listeners, um, not you. I list- know you've yeah. read it. <laughs> Jeez, Pfeiffer, come on. Yeah, I love my H.G. Wells. Well, I think that you can't say it's necessarily a bad story. It's just not the kind of story you wanted it to be. <sighs> yeah. No? You think it's a bad story? Yeah, I do. I don't think it was told the way it should have been told to be effective. And I'm standing by that. By the way, this story is also frequently called The Ghost of Fear. Hmm. I think that's a hilarious title. So I'm glad that they normally go by the Red Room because The Ghost of Fear is, that's dumb. (laughs) (laughs) It it might call out the point of this, but when I read that the first time, I thought that's one of the stupidest things I ever, that's like a nightmare of horror, you know? (laughs) It's very, (laughs) a little redundant. I think I liked it a little better than you did, but I also experienced all the same disappointments. I think you and I both, we just like a little more story in our stories. I do, I do. And I had high expectations. I have to say coming into this because I do love H.G. Wells so much that when I finally got to it, I was like, what? Come on. (laughs) I I think that's a pretty good summary of uh, of your reaction to the story in in two words. (laughs) What? Come on. (laughs) Well, what are we doing next week, Pfeiffer? I believe we're rocking some more color, aren't we? Some more color, some more rooms. I thought we'd do a story called The Red Lodge by H.R. Wakefield. Well, The Red Room could be in The Red Lodge. It could be in the Red Lodge. So maybe this connects it up. Uh, certainly, you know, a guy named HR, I would expect to know a guy named HG. So it could it make sense. Uh, makes yeah, sense. Totally makes sense. Do you know if the Red Lodge has anything to do with the Black Lodge? The Twin Peaks Black Lodge? Yeah. I hope not. That's some creepy stuff. Been a while since I've seen Twin Peaks. That's a that's another one that needs revisiting once the children yeah. get older. <laughs> yeah, that's not so, that's not good programming for toddlers. No, no, no. Although it would be a great uh, Halloween costume for uh, for Albie. Yeah, put him in a little red suit like and make him yeah. dance around. Yeah. Oh, he does the little sideways dance. Once he learns how to stamp his fingers, it's on. <laughs> we'll have him no sucking the backwards. <laughs> wow, that was good. It will be very interesting. There's a lot of people who don't know what we're talking about. Right no, now, well, that's so, okay. Uh, so we'll be back next time with The Red Lodge by H.R. Wakefield. Happy New Year, everybody. Happy New Year, Chad. Happy New Year to you, yeah. I'm yeah. glad. I'm look very much so looking forward to this year. We're going to get uh, Beowulf going this yeah, year. Yeah, we're going to rock some Beowulf. Uh, new and interesting video projects. Uh, yeah. Hopefully some more readings. New readers, new music, new all kinds of stuff. It's going to be really good 2014. With that, I am Chris Lackey. I'm Chad Fife, And you've been listening to the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast. At hppodcraft.com. HPPodcraft.com.